You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I, I grew up in school. I got kicked out of two high schools, and I was a class clown, and I was disruptive. That's what, that's what any progress report, any write-up that you would see, disruptive, class clown. Now I get paid to be disruptive and a class clown. On radio, so it's kind of like I took those, you know, so-called flaws and, and made them my, my strength in a, in a way. So I think that's what everybody needs to do. One of your things you say is "fuck your dreams," because in part you initially wanted to be a rapper. Yes, you ended up in radio. But how does one kind of navigate passion with failure? Oh, or how have you done it? That's a uh, that's a great question. I, um, Finally, I yeah. asked a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Like most brothers in the hood, man, I wanted to be a rapper, and you know, my mentor, Dr. Robert Evans, like he told me, like, yo, you suck as a rapper. Like, rap is not your thing, and I didn't fight him on that because I did enjoy radio. I really enjoyed radio more than I enjoyed rapping. That shit is whack to me. It wasn't natural to me, and so when he said that to me, it just clicked because a lot of times. You know, it's not our dream we're chasing. It's just something we see working for somebody else. And when you see it working for somebody else, you're like, oh, I can I can do that too. But it's not your dream. It's not the, the path that God wanted you to walk. Like, radio was my thing. Did you feel something different the first time yeah, you started doing a radio yeah, show? Yeah, I just felt it, man. I think we've all in this room experienced that. Like, that, that thing that you do that you know just feels right like this feels like me this is my future like i think if we're all you know aware of who we are as people and we're really in tune with the universe you know when you're in a certain space like this is what i want to do like I, I would do this for free like i genuinely enjoy doing it like it lifts me up it makes me feel empowered it, it inspires me Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Stand Up New York! And ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the James Altucher Podcast with his special guest, Charlemagne the God. Are you guys ready to have a good time tonight? And now please welcome the host of the James Altucher Podcast, James Altucher, and his guest, Charlemagne the God! I'm nervous because we got the greatest radio guy in the world right here, so. Wow. How are y'all? Y'all good tonight? What's happening? 
Not enough drinks on the tables, James. They're not serving liquor yet? Uh, it's too early? Yeah, are we not serving liquor yet? <laughs> so I'm going to introduce you. So Charlemagne, you've probably heard him on his great radio show, The Breakfast Club. It's syndicated all over the country. He also wrote the bestseller, Black Privilege, and he's just come out with Shook One. I'm going to read the subtitle, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. And it's surprisingly all about anxiety. And it was, I have to just say, it's, you know, everybody gets anxiety to some degree. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like shameful to talk about it. And I think what makes, and this is a lesson just in terms of whether you're a performer or whether you want to do well in your job or whether you want to rise up as a radio icon, you're so honest in here, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, towards the end, I'm not giving any spoilers, but towards the end, you're even describing anxiety like when you had a threesome 20 years ago, <laughs> which girl to focus on. And I, I can't relate. I, you, you've, had, you've had some type of indecisiveness, I'm sure, right? Like, you know, anxiety yes. makes you feel indecisive about something. Yes, yeah, I'll yeah, leave yeah. it at that. But I want to, this is, this is such a great book, but there's also, there's also so much stuff. It's all interweaves with how you've built your career, how you started off, you know, living in a trailer in South Carolina. Your, your parents broke up. You, were, you, you rose up from, from nothing. You, had, you got fired four times in this industry. You, yes, sir. You, you failed at your dreams of being a rapper. Thank and God. And then all through it, you're welcome. <laughs> I failed at my dreams of being a rapper as well. And uh, that was a joke. Um, and, 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 and yet, through it all, the interweaving of anxiety ties in very well with your, your success. Like, and not, not everyone just comes out of a trailer and says, I'm going to be the biggest radio guy in the world. Yeah. You, you did. So, so first off, I want to know, why do you, why do you want to write a book about anxiety as opposed to, like, some, some boring book about being on the radio or whatever. You know, it's, it's, you say that, but that's like literally probably one of my books in the future, just all about radio stuff. But yeah, I'll, it, it I'll, is, I'll nobody gives one. a fuck. <laughs> but um, to me, man, I just sat back and I was like, it wasn't like I set out to write a book about anxiety. It's not even like I set, set out to write a book about mental health. I really was just keeping a journal of all my experiences. You know, when I started going to therapy early, you know, last year, I started writing out um, things that were giving me anxiety now, things that historically had given me anxiety. And then you know how it is when you start going to therapy. When you start going to therapy, you start unpacking all kind of stuff you didn't know existed. You get to the source of like your PTSD or trauma from things that happened to you when you were younger. And then you start thinking about stuff that happened with your parents. And it's like, oh, I love my father, but no, I hate my father. And then I love my father again, all in this whole you know, span of like two or three, two or three months period. And then when I was just writing the journal and just keeping, uh, keeping notes of all my experiences, when it came time, you know, for the, for the book publishers, you know how they, they hit me. You wrote what, 21 books? Yes. Yeah, the book publishers hitting you like, hey, we'd love another book from you if you, if you got one. And I was like, hmm. Well, I mean, I got all of these pages about me going to therapy and anxiety and PTSD and trauma. Like, I can... Tell you all about that. Well, I want to I want to break down each one of those things. So, mm -hmm. first off, you taking the notes of all these experiences and all your anxieties. I think a, a hard thing for me. So I go to therapy. A hard thing is, oh, I got. I feel like it's homework. Like on the way 
there, I always have to figure out like what went, went what went wrong with me this week, so I have to something to talk about with her for an hour. Ooh. And but then I just realized it's great for me to take notes in the therapy session because then I she's so smart, the doctor, I could kind of rip her off a little bit and write a blog post about it about what she <laughs> says. But I tried to do that with my book. I was trying to transcribe everything that she was saying, and I felt like that was whack because I feel like that was her messaging for me. So that messaging was really just for me to explain my feelings better in that book. And then I went and got an actual mental health therapist, Dr. Ish Major, to give the clinical correlations. I feel like you just called me whack a little bit right there, but it's okay. Just a little bit, I mean. <laughs> but what made you decide, what was the first thing that, that made you decide to go to therapy? And then we could rewind and talk about your career, but I'm curious about this. Um, things just got very overwhelming. Like very, very... What was happening? I hate to sound like a dick, but too much success. Like, and you start questioning yourself, like, you know, are, are, you, are you worthy of this? And then you start thinking about, like, my mom who only made, like, $30,000 a year. And then you start thinking about, you know, just, just people that you know who may need help, you know, back from your hometown. And they ask you for things. And you start to feel guilty for you wanting to make purchases for yourself and as soon as you about to make a purchase you're like well damn somebody did just ask me for this you know a couple of days ago and I know that they could really use it so it, that was just one of the things and then like you know overwhelming parental paranoia like I got three daughters now you know last year it was just you know two but now I got three because I've been fucking and it's like you know I just I just it just was like constantly thinking about the world and the effect that the world could have on my, my, my kids and you know like you, my daughter's 10 so it's like you can't control what happens to her when she goes to school and you see things like school shootings on television and you hear about human trafficking and like all of that stuff like bugs you out and for me I really I really believe that my thoughts become things like I really believe in the power of my mind in that way like I'm a you know law of attraction type of guy so I, I, the things I want to happen in my life I constantly think about the things that I don't want to happen I try not to think about it all so when you got those thoughts just constantly popping in your head popping in your head popping in your head you think that something bad is gonna happen and you're gonna be the one who manifested so that's what gives you the panic attack so what made me start you know just actually going to therapy was to get a handle on that irrational anxiety well you know you mentioned how success obviously failure generates a lot of anxiety too. You have to raise the kids. But then success, people don't realize is a different type of anxiety. It's it's enormous because there's so many situations you can get yourself into where, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You could get fired again. You could get a bunch a million people on Twitter hating you. You could get, you know, you, you know could, my life? <laughs> wow. I do. Yeah. Uh, I prepared. I listen. Um where do you, I'm always curious, and you don't really mention it in, in this, in the book so much, but it's, it's sort of implied a little bit. Where do you think self, what do you think self-sabotage is? Do you think that's a real thing? Do you yes. think people sabotage themselves? Yeah, 100%. People get in their own way all the time. You know, that's, that's one thing that I've never, you know, had, had, had a problem with doing. I've never, there was a time when I was getting in my own way, but I was really, really, really young. And that's when my father, you know, told me that if I don't change my lifestyle, I'm going to end up in jail dead or broke sitting under a tree in Monk's Corner, South Carolina. And when I started to like get arrested myself and then seeing people around me actually going to prison for long stretches and seeing people around me getting killed and, you know, people that I admired and looked up to, they were really 
broke sitting under the tree. That's when the light bulb went off over my head. Like, oh shit! Like my father is right. So that that was in, uh, a, a, a moment where I started using that that fear as fuel because I would literally have panic attacks of one of those three options happening. Right. So it's like for me, I didn't get in my own way because I stopped myself from getting in my own way. Like when I, I I just needed to bump my head one or two times to realize like. Oh yeah, it's real out here. And luckily, I was one of those people who got the opportunity to learn from my mistakes, you know, and and move on from those mistakes when I was young. And I, I think a lot of times these kids nowadays, man, they're not getting second and third chances the way that we did or they when give we up. was younger. Or they give up. I never gave up. And the reason I never gave up because I don't have a plan B. I didn't go to college. I don't have no degrees. I don't have a wealthy family I can fall back on. I knew that it was either sink or swim for me. Like either I'm gonna do this and go hard at it, or I'm going to really be broke sitting under the tree in Mount's corner. And you mentioned this in your in your last book, Black Privilege, like you mm -hmm. talk about essentially persistence, work hard, do what you love, uh, and and basically, and even do for free. You know, do do what you be willing to do what you love for free to kind of climb up. And we were talking upstairs to to build your network and get the connections. And the, and the best way to do that is just to throw yourself at, at something you love. How did you know? You loved radio, and then whenever anyone begins something, there's always going to be you're going to suck at it in the beginning, even if you love it, and you're going to have to recognize that you suck. I never and keep continued. All right, you never sucked. I I wasn't as good as I could have been, but I didn't suck. I had a natural raw talent, and the reason I know that is because other radio personalities used to tell me that. So that was kind of like. One of the things that put the battery in my back because I already loved it and I had a passion for it, but I started off doing this thing called uh, voice tracking. Well, the way I got in the radio period was I was um, I just decided to start working a bunch of odd jobs to like just create positive energy in my life because there's an acronym I like to use and it's peace and this positive energy activates constant elevation and like for the lifestyle that I was living, like you know, in and out of jail. You know, uh, you know, selling drugs, you know, hanging with the wrong crowd. I knew that in order to change my, my, my life, I had to change that lifestyle. And part of changing that lifestyle was cutting that off altogether. And so I started working mad odd jobs. I worked at, you know, uh, my first job was a warehouse called Industrial Acoustics Company. I got fired from there after a couple weeks. Um, Why'd I, you get fired? The, the thing that they always tell me is that uh, they're always going in another direction. Any job I've ever gotten fired from, they've always told me they're moving in another direction. Every single job. I got fired from Taco Bell by, by my sister, who was the manager. Fired me after two weeks. She told me they was moving in another direction. I was like, I live with you. What, do, what wait, other direction are you going in? Wait, wait. I gotta... Is that true? That's 100% that's true. So wait, why did... Did you tell your sister, I know the script, I know you're lying right now, it's not another direction. What, you did know, she you tell did, you what you, what yeah, you did? I, it didn't, what, that whole phrase didn't even like hit me until the fourth time I got fired from radio in 2009. I've been fired from four different radio stations. When I got fired in 2009, I got a homegirl named Kendra G. Kendra G said, listen, I want you to go back home to South Carolina, because I was doing radio in Philly at the time. Go back home to South Carolina, and she said, spend all the time you can with your family, reset, because when you get back in position, you're not going to have time. 
And the next position I got into was the Breakfast Club. And she said, every time they call you into these, these offices, because I used to tell this story, like every time they call you into these offices, they tell you that they're moving in another direction. She said, it's not them moving in another direction, it's God moving you in another direction. And the reason I always embrace that is because every single time that I would get fired, I would always like get fired up. Like I would always end up at a better radio station. So, so there's, so. On the one hand, there's an element of surrender. So if you find mm -hmm. yourself in a bad situation, and you talk about this in Black, black Privilege, uh, learn the lesson from it. Yes. But then there's also this element of surrender, like, okay, something bad happened. I don't know where, what direction I'm being moved in, but I need to surrender to it. And that helps reduce the anxiety. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that lesson until later, too. Because the first time I ever got fired from radio, I really thought like my life was over. Because you got to think, I, I didn't go to college. I don't have any degrees. I was selling crack. So I already felt like I wasn't supposed to be here anyway. So I felt like it was only a matter of time before somebody looks up and says, you know what? This guy really don't have no experience and he really does not know what the hell he's doing. Why do we even have him here at this radio station? So I had worked at a station called Z93 Jams and um, I left there to go work at Hot 98.9 and I did full time there Monday through Friday. And I like, the show was like number 14 when I got there and I took it to like number two in the city, like right behind. What other Z93 directions Jams. do they want to go in? <laughs> That's a good point. But they, they they fired me. And the guy that fired me, his name was Corey Hill. And he took away, like, he, he, they first they took away all my features. So they were just trying to, like, break me down a little bit. And then after they took away all my features, they eventually fired me. And he fired me so ill. He fired me, like, like, like you know how on Friday when Craig was like, I got fired on my day off? Like, he literally fired me on my day off. Like, I literally was away for the weekend from, like, I used to work Monday through Saturday. So I took off that Friday and Saturday and I was down in Miami doing some work because I used to work for this, this independent record label. And when I got back, he was like, yo, I don't want you to come back to work until me and you have a conversation. And I was like, okay, when's that going to be? He said, I'll call you. He didn't call me for like three days. So then the general manager calls me. I was like, yo, why haven't you been coming to work? And I was like, because your program director told me not to come in until we have a conversation. And then me and the general manager had a meeting and he basically told me how Corey Hill, the program director, thought he couldn't work with me and I was arrogant and yada, yada, yada. But didn't the general manager want to make money? I mean, he, he took he, the he did. radio station up. He did, but he was only the general manager, not the owner, mm. you know? So the owner and Corey Hill wanted me up out of there. So they ended up firing me. And when he fired me, I hated that motherfucker. Like I wanted to like hurt him really bad because I felt like he was ruining my life like i'm trying to change and trying to be a, a new man and a new person and i got this career i never had a career i was making nineteen thousand dollars a year but to me i was like just to just to say oh i got a salary sounded like a thing like a really big thing and i'm like you was ruining my life so i really didn't understand the surrender aspect of it when i first got fired but then when i look back on that situation I know for a fact I caused that whole firing on myself because I was arrogant. You know, I was like, I was feeling myself because I, I was never, I mean, I was always cool growing, but it's the difference between being hood cool and actually being on the radio and, you know, people looking at you like some type of local celebrity. Like, I remember the first time I went to this club called The Nightlife in King Street, South Carolina, and my name was on the marquee. And that shit blew my mind. And like, and this, and mind you, King Street is like a town of 2,000 people. So it's like, it's like one stoplight town. So of course they would be excited to see me. And it's like, they were treating me like a real star. And that shit, all that shit went to my head. Like so, it absolutely went to my head. Like I remember, I, I, it was, a, it was a, a woman out there and I remember her coming up to me and saying, I'm gonna do whatever Charlemagne the God tells me to. And I was like, oh shit. Like, 
that's how it is for real. Like, like you know, so it's like that was like my first experience with groupie love. And I kind of, I, I know for a fact I lost my mind. I feel like God took that job away from me back then because I was misusing the platform. Wait. Now we, you want to know about the groupie love. Can we, what, can we just trade lives for a little while? Like, <laughs> like a science fiction movie, like Freaky Friday. Like it goes back 20 years in time. Oh, I'm Charlemagne. And you wake up, oh, I'm this nebbishy, weird guy. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then we have to figure it out. But, but then it has like a sad ending, like we never switch back at the end. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm like Charlemagne the whole time, forever. And you're like, stop. I thought we're supposed to switch back at the end. It's a rom-com. It's a tragedy. <laughs> it's not changing. So, so what'd you do when you got fired and you thought, this is it? I, um, I surrendered. And I, and I realized that I, I, I had to check myself and realize, you know what? Nobody got me fired but me. That's number one. Like, I was blaming everybody else and, you know, blaming Corey Hill. But the truth of the matter was it was me and it was my arrogance. And um, so I, at the time I was doing uh, independent I was working for this record label called Never So Deep Records, and they were a subsidiary of MCA, but the guy, his name, uh, he's a great mentor of mine, his name is Dr. Robert Evans, and his son's name is DJ Bless, he's a producer. So they were based out of Somerville, South Carolina. And um, what, what he did, he made me buckle down. He was like, look, it's just a pit stop. You know, we're gonna do a CD, and it's gonna be a compilation CD, and it's gonna be structured like a radio show, and you're gonna host it, and it's gonna be all our artists, and we're gonna send it out all over South Carolina, so it'll serve as an air check. And you know, I was like, okay. And so I did that, and I got a call from uh, the Big DM in Columbia, South Carolina, and this dude named Mike Love, he he hired me, you know, to come do radio in Columbia, South Carolina, and that was like an eye opener for me. Because I didn't know that I could do radio anywhere else, and that's what made me—that's what made me so mad at Corey Hill, because I already had worked at two stations in Charleston, South Carolina, and at the time, that's all I knew was Charleston, South Carolina. I never even been on a plane. I didn't get on a plane until like 2002. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like I didn't know anything but Charleston. So when I got another job somewhere else, I was like, oh, so this is how the game of radio works. Like I can get jobs other places. Like I don't have to be from the area to get another job. So that was kind of a an eye opener for me. And so, so what happened next? I uh, started driving to Columbia every weekend, which I was happy for because my, my now wife, she started going to the University of South Carolina. And so that just gave me a reason to be there every weekend. And so I started doing radio there and they, was owned by, they were owned by a company called Inner City Broadcasting and they weren't really a hip hop station. They just turned to hip hop for a moment because the ratings were bad and they knew that hip hop was the popping thing. So once the ratings shot back up and you know, they started getting more, more advertising, they decided to flip the station back to urban adult contemporary. So therefore I didn't have a place to be anymore. But what they did was they actually bought the other hip-hop station in the market, which was their main competition, Hot 1039, and they moved me over there. And that was dope because Hot 1039 was, um, they started syndicating Wendy Williams on Hot 1039. And when they started syndicating Wendy Williams on Hot 1039, she used to come on before my show. So she'd be on in the afternoon, I'd be on at night. And it's like her producers started to actually hear my content. And like they started to hear some of the interviews and stuff that I did. And she started like just shouting me out and talking about, interviews that I was doing and I was like oh shit so it's like yo my, my name started to grow and then like a lot of the interviews I was doing in Columbia started to like 
go viral before viral was a thing. Back then, there was only a couple of hip-hop websites. You had like allhiphop.com, you had SOHH.com, but they would like post my content. And so my name continued to grow, continued to grow. And then I actually got fired. How many firings we on now? One, Hot 99. I got fired from Hot 1039 in Columbia. And the reason I got fired from Hot 1039 is because two reasons. For one reason, there was this guy who used to be a manager at this club in Columbia, South Carolina, and there was always the urban legend that he was putting date rape drug in women's drinks and taking advantage of them, but nobody could ever prove it. But then one day, this young lady pressed charges against the guy, and the guy got arrested, and they had his mugshot on the Richland County website, and so I took the mugshot and put it up on my MySpace page and wrote like this, you know, long woke caption about how we got to watch this business and we can't frequent these places that are doing these things to our women. And the guy sued me. He sued me for defamation of character. And the lawyer said in the, 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 the statement, even though what he said about my client was true, even though he did get arrested for these things and it was all public record. So that must have made you anxious. It wasn't my place to say. Well, it I did because I never had been sued and I didn't know what that meant. And I, you know, I only had been fired once up until that point, but that felt like I was about to get fired. But they didn't fire me. They demoted me to one day a week and settled with the goddamn club for $2,000. Huh. Right? So, um, so Wendy Williams was, was following your stuff. Yes. So at the same time, Wendy's uh, husband, me and, her, me and him, it had built such a, a good rapport because when Wendy used to come down to the market, we just used to show them love. You know, go get them weed. You know, take them to the clubs. You know what I mean? They'd buy us bottles. Like, it was just a... A good relationship, you know, and um, the, the first time I met Wendy, I, I was like, like being real pushy, like I was trying to get her to listen to my head checks and, you know, listen to these parody songs I did. And she told me, shut, she said, get the fuck out of this studio with that mixtape bullshit. She said, take that mixtape shit to my husband. And I could have been discouraged in that moment, but instead I said, okay, well, where's your husband? And she was like, he's in that room. So I, you know, I went in there and gave him the mixtapes and we built, we had a conversation and we built up a rapport from there. So they used to play Wendy's show two to six in the afternoon, but the program director started complaining so much because he used to be on two to six in the afternoon. So they eventually moved her show to 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. at night, but they used to rerun the show over and over and over again, like never play the, the like new shows. So one day I just called her husband like, yo, they keep rerunning the same, the same show over and over. And he was like, word. So he came down, he heard it for himself, and then he went back to New York and raised hell. And when he went back to New York and raised hell, I ended up getting demoted like the next week. So all of this was running like, you know, parallel with each other. And so when he found out I got demoted, he thought I got demoted because of the information I gave him about them rerunning the show. So he invited me to come up to New York for a party that they was having. And I came to the party and like Wendy was in there drunk and she was like, yo, come on my show tomorrow. You can't tell me shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Cause I'm gonna hold you to that. You know, like, okay, I'll be there. Like you're drunk and I'm drunk, but I remember this. And so like the whole next day I'm calling her husband like, yo, Wendy told me to come to her show. Wendy told me to come to her show. Wendy told me to come to her show. So finally he told me to go up there. I went up there, I was there for like 25 minutes. And then that night, I didn't even know she was looking for a co-host. And they offered me the position. And they was like, look, we can't pay you, but we can give you a place to stay. So let's talk about that. Yeah. They, didn't, they can't pay you, but I'm sure you automatically said yes. 100%. So, so a lot of people don't know the power of free. They think that you should, hey, if I'm, if I'm worth something, I should get paid for it. But what's, what, there, there's a power to doing something for free. Yeah, I think that if you're worth something, then eventually you'll get paid your worth, you know? And you got to have that kind of confidence in yourself. And I knew that 
if I did what I was supposed to do on Wendy's show or do what I knew, know I was capable of doing, I could write my own ticket. I came, was coming from market number 98 in Columbia, South Carolina. Now I'm on market number one sitting with the, a nationally syndicated radio show host, one of the greatest radio show hosts of all time who's in the Radio Hall of Fame. Like, you can't pay for that kind of experience. That, that experience is invaluable, you know? So it's like... I, I took it with, with with no questions asked, and they did give me a place to stay. They had me living in a condo in Fort Lee, and you know, sometimes they would forget to pay the light bill, and that was cool. I wouldn't say anything. They didn't want to rock the boat, you know. And just sometimes you're sitting there with no lights, and then mm-hmm. when somebody finally comes over, you're like, "Hey, there's no lights on in here." Yeah, it's just been off you're for like a week. You're just sitting there in the dark. Yeah, that's all. That's like scary. It's been <laughs> off for a week. No biggie. You mm-hmm. know, cold showers in the middle of the winter. It's fine. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And then and then. Obviously, you got fired again. <laughs> I got fired from Wendy. That's what we're on, number three now. Um, mm-hmm. I got fired from Wendy November of 2008 because I worked for free for like a year and a half. And then they finally put me on the payroll because, you know, at first they hated me when I moved to New York. I mean, everybody fucking hated me. Callers hated me. Listeners, they was like, who is this guy on the radio with Wendy? I remember they even did a poll. Like, should we send Charlemagne back home? And that shit was like 87% of the people said, <laughs> hell yes. Like, it was like, it was like, yes, no, hell yes. And, and it was like 87% of the people said, hell yes. You know? Why do you think? Um, I think at the time it was uh, a couple of reasons. I think it was because... At the time, it was 2006, New York had such a backlash to down south because that's when like the tide of hip hop was even changing a little bit. So it's like the down south artists were starting to come up and down south music was starting to come up and New York was kind of like rebelling against the south without even knowing it. So it's just like, who is this cocky ass kid from South Carolina that's coming up here shitting on all our artists? and saying how our artists are whack. And I just think it was a little bit of everything. I just think this, the city was like, nah, we not with that. But I had a guy, uh, a, a friend, he was, a, he was an older dude. His name was Ron Ferguson. He had to be like 60 years old at the time. It's kind of like you. He had glasses and like- I'm not 60. Wild dreadlocks. I know, I know, but I'm saying- at the t- I mean, he A might little be, bit of gray hair, yeah, but- Yeah, he was, just, he was just like an older, like wise and like dude like you know look like he may be in a garage building right. a time machine or something you know that. what i mean and <laughs> he was like he 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 just told me one day he was like you know eventually you're gonna win up there right and i was like what he was like you're gonna win you're gonna win and i was like why and he was like because you're honest he was just like just, just keep being honest the well world, it's true. the world loves honest people when i when i listen to your interviews on The Breakfast Club, what always comes out is how authentic you are. You're calling everyone on their shit, whether it's Kanye West or whoever it is. You're, you're always authentic with them, and it seems in a fearless way. Like, you don't get worried about the backlash. You don't worry if they hate you. You're not rude to them. Mm-hmm. You're trying to be as honest as possible and, and have a soft landing with them, but you're just you're honest about it. And, and I think that's yeah. the key to a lot of what you do on the radio and why people tune into it is they know they're going to get the, the authentic voice of you. Yeah, and that's what he told me. And he was just like, yo, just talk about what you're going through. And so I'm like, what you mean? He was like, talk about the 87% of people that want you to go home. Like, talk about how, how rough it is making this transition in New York. Talk about the culture shock of coming from South Carolina to New York. Talk about living for free. With, like, talk about it. And that's what I started to do. And also, maybe he's also saying when someone 80, is 87%, hell yes, get rid of this guy, that's an energy too. 
Oh, that, 100%. That's almost as good as 87% saying, yeah, keep this guy. Yeah. Because you can use that energy to, to propel conversation. Yeah, if you really, it's weird the way we're wired. If we really, really hate something, we tune into it all the time. And it's almost like, it's almost like we're checking to make sure we really hate it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like when you go to your favorite restaurant, you go there because they got great food. It's like when you really don't like something, you just need a little peek at it just to be like, oh, I can't stand that motherfucker. Yeah. I don't know why. It's like, why do you think the Kardashians are who they are? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I, like it's, it's a, it's, I don't know why we tune into what we hate. It's, it's the weirdest thing in the world. It's like so, we want to complain. <laughs> I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So I wanna I wanna know, I wanna know talk about the book, Shook One, mm-hmm. a little bit. You started going to therapy, but a lot of, a lot you mentioned a lot kind of the cultural differences between Blacks, whites, whatever. Uh, people don't, you know, black people don't want to go to therapy, and they don't acknowledge that they might be feeling anxious. As and you say, there's statistically there's a difference in the level of anxieties between you know black people and other races and stuff. So, mm-hmm. what's what's up? What, when people hear you go to therapy, what what do you see as their reactions? Do you think this will kind of encourage people to say, hey? This is a viable option for you. It's not a weakness. Yeah, I don't even know if it's the fact that black people don't want to go to therapy. It's just something that that's not a resource that's available to us when we're when we're growing up. At least it wasn't for me. Only time I used to even hear about therapy was on Frasier. And then when I started watching like Girlfriends and I think it was Jill Marie Jones character, Tony used to go to therapy, you know, but any other, back then therapy was like when you get you're driving and you get rear-ended. And then you start faking injuries and you got to go to therapy, you know, a couple of times out of the month just to, you know, get make right. sure that that settlement is right and where it needs to be. I just think that it's just a resource that people aren't aware of, you know. And like now, when they hear me talk about going, I would hope that it encourages people to go. Like, I just found out that my mom used to go 20 years ago. Like, when my mom and my father were getting a divorce, she was going in. I didn't know that. But if... I would have known that 20 years ago, then I would have known that there's this resource available that just helps me organize all the bullshit I got going on in my brain. 
But again, like so many people avoid it or deny that they could have problems in their brain. Like you, and, and not that anxiety is a problem in the brain, but anxiety disorder is a real illness. And Which I never knew until this year, by the way. I just thought anxiety was anxiety. Like I didn't know it was like an actual condition. I didn't even know that anxiety fell under the mental illness umbrella. Like I had well, no idea. Well, like, and you give as an example, like let's say you've been shot at or you or you've been arrested a couple of times or you're selling crack there's 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 anxiety like oh, oh the next time the police guy turns the corner yeah. or the next time someone turns the corner, i could get shot or killed or arrested or whatever yeah. and then that P, that ptsd creates more generalized anxiety than the average person's going to experience yeah i got a chapter in the book called blackanoid and it's about being black and paranoid in america because i just feel like it's a different set of circumstances uh, that, that we have to deal with that other races don't. And you know, it could, it, it could even be like PTSD could even be post-traumatic slave disorder. Like a lot of that pain could be passed on from, you know, our ancestors. Police used to be the original slave catchers. So maybe when that's when they get behind me, it's not just the videos of you know uh, of Michael Brown or Philando Castile or, or Alton Sterling or Walter Scott that makes me paranoid. It could be just the fact that yo, those are the same people that used to catch my ancestors. Now they're trying to catch me. So how does how does um like let's say talk therapy help in that when it's what's happening there is let's say you see a police car now or something that triggers one of these past events, yeah. is it talk therapy that helps or do you need medication no. or? No, I'm, I'm not on medication yet. I'm not opposed to it. I don't, but for the most part, therapy has been helping me out a lot. I think it helps me because that's one of the reasons I chose a white therapist. You know, um, my, when I first started. That's racist, man. No, I can tell I'm you why. Kidding. When I first started, I wanted an Asian woman therapist. And, and, the, the, and like, that's a fetish. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I wanted an Asian woman therapist because I wanted somebody that was going to be like totally neutral. Like I wanted somebody that didn't understand my world, didn't understand my world professionally or personally, didn't have uh, some of the same biases that I may have, some of the same, you know, preconceived notions about the world that I may have. Like I didn't want to go in there and be talking to somebody who I'd be like, yo, man, white people are the devil. And they'd be like, yes, they are. Like, no, I wanted to like, 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 talk to somebody that's coming from a neutral place. But if you think trying to find a black therapist is hard, try to find an Asian woman therapist. Okay, so I ended up talking to this to this white woman, and she was really, she's been really good for me because she doesn't know anything about my world, and I think that she's learning from me just as much as as I'm learning from her. And you know, sometimes I'll unload on her, and one time in particular, she just went, "Woo." And I was like, that was a lot, right? And she was like, yes, that's a lot. And she just sat there for a minute. And I thought that was so dope because she wasn't just so quick to regurgitate something from the four agreements or, you know, the power of intention. She just like sat there and like let it sink in for a second before, you know, she, she replied to me. And so I just, I, for me, I, that's, that's why I thought it was really good to have somebody who was neutral because it made me realize I'm not crazy. And it made me realize that the things that are bothering me would bother anybody if they were in that circumstance. Because I think a lot of times, man, people just, you know, being a black man in America or just being a black person in America, you wonder if people give a shit. You know, like when you see what's happening to black and brown people in this country or you see what's happening to them at the hands of the police or you see like injustices like 
Colin Kaepernick takes the knee because he's really taking the knee for, you know, people that are experiencing police brutality, but then they flip it to, oh, he's being unpatriotic. And I'm like, so you're just going to ignore the fact that he's telling y'all over and over he's taking the knee because of police brutality? Like, so it makes you wonder do motherfuckers even care at all. So when you talk to somebody, you know, that's, that, that's not from your world and they hear it and they get it and they totally agree and understand, it just makes you feel better. And do you think, like, how long now have you seen your therapist? Yeah, some change. So yeah. do, you think it's, do you think it's, A, do you think it's helping? And B, here's the one question I always have about therapy. Mm-hmm. When I get a cold, I go to the doctor, the doctor might give me medicine, and then I never go to the doctor again. When you go to therapy, it's like you, you check, it's like the hotel that you check in, but you can never get out. Because uh, it like feels like therapy never is supposed to end. They're I like, don't well, think we'll it talk about that next week. We're finished now. We'll talk about that one next yeah, week. It's always to be continued. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So does it end? No. No. And I don't want it to. Like, you know, I, I, I've, I've, like right now, I'm... So it's un- like a coach sort of thing. Yeah. I feel like, yo, it's, that's like saying, that's like having a gym membership and then you just work out just enough like oh i'm good now i got muscles no you got to keep that that upkeep going you know what's, what I mean? what what's a gym membership what's, <laughs> what's <laughs> you go no. there for protein shakes <laughs> yeah. so so the other day you were supposed to do this uh, it was going to be a sold out event at the new york times uh you interviewing kanye west mm-hmm. you decided to cancel it because you felt kanye west was admitted in the past being bipolar mm-hmm. he was sort of now in denial of it and you felt it wouldn't be the conversation you wanted to have because he's off his meds and maybe he's he's a, he, 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 I, I don't know why did why did you really not want to talk to him at that, that event? That was the reason. I just thought it was going to be such a big distraction. And you know, I'm I'm really trying to elevate this conversation about mental health in our communities. And like, um, I felt like especially after what we saw in the White House and you know him saying. I'm not bipolar. I got misdiagnosed. It was sleep deprivation and I'm off my medication. And then, you know, I just felt like it would have just been when I saw him say that my immediate thought was that brother needs to go get another opinion. You know what I'm saying? Like he needs to he needs to really figure that out for himself because we all know the first sign of any real problem is denial. And I think that one of the reasons that he may have backtracked is because of the reaction that he got from the general public when he admitted that he was bipolar like everybody he, he was thinking that he might have been thinking in his mind damn as soon as i said i was bipolar and i started embracing it everybody started treating me like i'm crazy no we treating you like you're crazy because you're running around here with the maga hat on and you know hugging on donald trump saying you love this man like that's the reason people are really treating you crazy but i but, feel like even with that we got to have a little bit more empathy like you know like but, but let's say your conversation with him at the new york times was this that you basically said to him look you've admitted you had bipolar Second opinions are important. Medication's important. Uh, therapy's important. What would that conversation have gone like, do you think? I don't think, that's, I don't think that's an interview-worthy conversation. Like, that's a conversation you should really be having with a therapist. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like, I shouldn't be on stage challenging him on whether or not something is wrong with him. Like, no, listen, you're fucked up. You are fucked up. You need to go get some help. Like, nah, that's not the, the right way to do that. Then that, then that, then, then he, I'm sure he would be, he becomes defensive at that point, you know? And then now all of a sudden the headline is Kanye West goes into long rant at New York Times, you know, Times Talk with Charlemagne, and then it's nothing about 
mental health. And I just feel like I'm not going to continue to add on to the, to the circus. Like that, it would have just been a circus. I think so anyway. Do you think he's kind of backtracked a little bit and maybe realized his condition? Because now he's sort of said that, oh, I've, I've been fooled or I've been, you know, he's kind of changed gears a little bit in the past few days. Yeah, um, I spoke to him a couple of days ago. I, and I, when I spoke to him a couple of days ago, he was quite clear on and just in general. And I'm like, oh, you back on your meds. I'm just not telling nobody. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I know the difference. Like I've had, I've seen him when he's not on his medication and I've had conversations with him when he's clearly on his medication. I could just, I could just tell. So I just feel like, you know, whatever, whatever help he needs, I, I hope he gets. And I think that we don't do, we don't do anybody any, you know, service when we're, constantly exploiting something when we know something is wrong with a person like we're exploit it, it becomes exploitation because the man is telling you he used to be bipolar uh, not used to be he's telling you he was bipolar then he's saying no it was sleep deprivation and he's not off his medication all conversations should stop right then and there it should be about nothing other than yo make sure this man gets the help that he needs mm. period like we shouldn't be we shouldn't even be listening to any words that are coming out of his coming out of his mouth like why like clearly, like the man is a little bit unstable at times. So, so for you now, given that, I mean, all the time you're in, like, you know, people on Twitter get upset. You say one thing. There's a whole fight that happens. You know, black versus white. This country's so polarized, and, and it must get very. You must get anxious with all that. How do you now, on a daily basis, deal with anxiety other than therapy? Like, what are the kind of the basic? What's the basic tool set for you to, to get up and go to work in the morning and, and yeah. be at high performance? Well, let's be clear. I love, I love the racist back and forth. And the reason I love the racist back and forth is because I'm only calling racists on their bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm only calling out racist bigots. Like, we all know all white people aren't bad. Just like white people should know all black people aren't thugs or whatever they want to stereotype us as. But we live in a generation where... Like it's like the Klan took their hoods off. Like racists are like proud about it. You know, sexists are proud about it. Homophobes are proud about it. The Islamophobes are proud about it. So you can call them on this shit, and I'm not upset with them when they, you know, get upset with me and send me death threats and stuff like that. But you know, just to to, to set the positive energy for my day, I wake up in the morning, I pray. You know, I read out of my um, daily affirmation books. I got two of them. One of them is Your Best Life by Joel Osteen. The other is The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. And then, you know, when I get in my car, I listen to either 90s R&B or I listen to Oprah's Super Soul Conversations or I listen to nothing. You know, I ride in silence, you know, and I don't really touch my phone for at least an hour until after, after I wake up. And then, you know, that's when I tweet out, like, thank you, God, for another day of life. And then somebody will tweet me back, God damn, I can't wait till I don't see this tweet anymore. You know? And by that time, I'm prepared for it. And you've talked about, you talk about in this book, uh, a detox from social media is a pretty good thing. And, I, and yeah. I've actually been trying it myself. And, and you, when I started doing the research on it, people touch their cell phones 2,600 times a day. <sighs> and they're on their phone an average of four hours. In America, they're on their phone an average of four hours and 40 minutes a day. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So I've started, not always, but I've tried not taking my cell phone out of the house because I have it actually with me right now, but I, most of the time I try not to take it out of the house because then I know there's no other way. I can't deal with social media if it's not with me outside the house. But... What do you, what's the effect of social media on you? You need social media for your job to some extent. I guess. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. 
I just feel like we're in verbally abusive relationships with our smartphones. You know, it's like you would not walk into your house and allow somebody to curse at you and tell you that you ain't shit and they want you to die. Fuck you. Like you would divorce that person or stop seeing that person. You wouldn't work at a job. How did you describe my last two marriages? <laughs> you wouldn't work at a job where your boss is doing the same thing, yelling at you, screaming at you, telling you that you ain't shit. But we literally choose to be in verbally abusive relationships with our smartphones. We go on Twitter. We go on Instagram. We go on Facebook just to get shit talked about us. Like, it's the weirdest thing in the world. Like, it's a beautiful Saturday night, 6 o'clock, you go to your Twitter, next thing you know, you're in a fucking Twitter feud with some stupid motherfucker with a Homer Simpson Abby, and you don't, you don't even know why. So it's just like, yo, sometimes you just got to put the phone away, close the door, you know, and just breathe and take in some, some other energy. So, and, and then also social media gives you such crazy anxiety because it's like painting this unattainable picture of perfection. You know, it's like you go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, you go on, you know, Twitter and everybody's just living the good life. You don't see none of the mistakes nobody's making. It's just, it's, it's everybody's highlight reel. You don't see none of the shots they're missing. You don't see none of the L's they receive for years, just years. Like you see people and you're like, how the fuck are they living like this? They never post that work. You know what I'm saying? They never post how they make money, but they're just always living the high life. And then I think that that unattainable picture of perfection that's being painted on social media is, is being pulled into the real world. And nobody wants to like talk about mistakes that they're making. Nobody wants to talk about the times they feel down. Like nobody wants to talk about the times they're depressed. Nobody wants to talk about the bad shit no more. And it's like everybody's walking around faking perfections. So imagine being a young kid and then you make a mistake. And you see everybody faking like they perfect on social media. See everybody faking like they in real life. And you don't even want to tell nobody about your mistake because you feel like they're going to look at you like you're inferior. You might want to kill yourself, man. Yeah, and do you, do you personally feel that? Like, if you, like let's, say, let's say whether it was yesterday or mm -hmm. two years ago or five years ago, did you, or when you were fired, would you go on like social media or whatever? You see all these strangers. Um, did, you, did you get that low at any point where you felt like, Oh my God, I was just fired. All these people are huge successes. I want to kill myself. Nah, I never wanted to kill myself over, over social media. I mean, it's been things that have, that have bothered me. You know, like, like I said, if I tweet out, thank you God for blessing me with another day of life, and then somebody hits me with the damn, I can't wait until I don't have to see this tweet no more. Like, that's like, what the fuck? Like, it's six in the morning, bro. Like, right. you know what I'm saying? Right, it like, affects you no matter. Like, Some, like, sometimes people are lucky and they hit the buttons. Like, yeah. most people try to hit you and they'll miss. Yeah. But some people don't know where you're most fragile well, what, inside well, and they'll hit you. That adds to, to, to my anxiety because I always be telling my wife, like, yo, the, the, the scariest thing in the world is knowing that it's somebody out there right now plotting to destroy you in some way, shape, or form. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they really sit. They're not just actively wishing that you fail. They're cooking up something. Because they know that a lot of times nowadays in the era that we live in, social media, nobody cares about the truth and the lies we're entertaining. You can just throw shit out there. I've had a white wife my whole career. And she's not. She's black. But as I'm saying, on social media, they say she's white. Like, and I'm like, huh? I'm like, it's this picture that they've been sending me of my... It's not me, but they send it to me. I, I almost said myself. That's how much they send it to me. It's a picture of a man butt-necking on all fours. And he's just got a bald head and a fat ass. And he's looking at the camera. And I'm looking... They've sent this shit to me so much, and they'd be like, explain yourself. And I'm like, <laughs> and I've been looking at this same picture for five years. And I, I'm like, do I have to explain myself about it? Like, I Wait. know this isn't me. 
Did you, did you ever, you should bring that guy on your show. <laughs> I don't even know who that dude is. But it's just, it's like they send me this shit all the time. So I'm just saying like, there is people that are actively working against you at all times. And that's a, that's, that's a feeling that, that keeps you on edge. Like you ever, you know, wake up in the morning and you got 800 Twitter messages. And you're like, okay, what the fuck happened last night? You know what I'm saying? And, and you'll be surprised how much that affects people, man. I got a homeboy right now. And he's somebody that everybody knows. And, and like, I'll text him and just be like, yo, how you doing? And he'd be like, what happened? He don't even say, he don't even say yo, I'm good. He'd be like, what happened? Right, you're and, in then I, and then I got to go Google his name just to make sure shit ain't happened. That's not normal, bro. Right? That's not a normal way to live. You know what I'm saying? So, but it comes with the territory, I guess. So, so I want to reel back a little bit to the beginning. One mm -hmm. of your things you say in Black Privilege is, fuck your dreams. And it's because, in part, you initially wanted to be a rapper. Yes. You ended up in radio, which, by the way, could, could be, you could say, you, st you stuck with the umbrella of the same dream, which was being a, a, a voice in, in the culture and... and you know, being a communicator, an entertainer, a performer. So they're roughly, they're not the same, but it's in the same category. Mm -hmm. But how does one kind of navigate passion with failure? Oh. Or how have you done it? That's a, uh, that's a great question. I, um, I mean, Finally, you know, I asked a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Like, like, most, like most brothers in the hood, man, like the people we see who are successful that look like us, they're usually in entertainment or athletics. So that's why I wanted to be a rapper and you know my mentor dr robert evans like he told me like yo you suck as a rapper like rap is not your thing you know what i'm saying like you should stick to this radio thing because you're like really good at that and if you focus on radio you could be one of the biggest radio personalities in the country and i didn't fight him on that and the reason i didn't fight him on that like i didn't even feel the need to want to prove him wrong because i did enjoy radio i really enjoyed radio more than i enjoyed rapping you're going to rap you go in the booth in the studio and you hot and you sweating and you off beat and yo run that back yo run that back and you just uh uh one two one two just trying to catch the beat like that shit is whack to me it wasn't natural to me and so it's like when he said that to me it just clicked because a lot of times you know we, we, we it's not really our it's not our dream we're chasing it's just something we see working for somebody else and when you see it working for somebody else, you're like, oh, I can, I can do that too. But it's not your dream. It's not the, mm -hmm. the path that God wanted you to walk. Like, radio was my thing. And I got a tattoo on my arm. I got this when I was mad young. And it's Wolverine holding a microphone in his hand because I thought I was going to be a rapper. And I just knew that that microphone was going to change my life. But I realize now that microphone wasn't, you know, the spit bars. It was the How did you know? How did you content. know radio... What, like, did you, did you feel something different the first time yeah, you started doing a radio show? Yeah, I just felt it, man. I think, um, I think we've all in this room experienced that, like that, that thing that you do that you know just feels right. Like this feels like me. This is my future. Like, I think if we're all you know, aware of who we are as people and we're really in tune with the universe, you know when you're in a certain space like this is what I want to do. Like, I, I would do this for free. Like, I genuinely enjoy doing it. Like, it lifts me up. It makes me feel empowered. It, it inspires me. Like, I don't, I don't even care about the money. I just like doing radio. And that's what it was for me. Like, it was almost like I would always get in trouble when I was in school for being a clown and being disruptive. 
So, so, so someone listening to this mm-hmm. who uh, is trying to figure out, like, oh, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I just got fired from some weird job. I want to figure out what I love. I don't know. I've, it's been 20 years of working the grind. I want to do now something I love. What, what could be the first step? Not At the 40? last step, but the first step. At 40? Yeah. I don't know. You should have had that figured out by 40. 40? Don't, don't, don't let 40? them down. Don't let them down. They're listening. I'll tell you one thing. Don't rap. They're, okay. they're, they're listening they, in their Nobody's going to respect a 40-year-old rapper trying to make it, okay? Um, but they're listening in their car. They're on the edge of their seats. They're listening to you. What, they want to reinvent. They just got fired. Uh, they, that's not that easy. I got to hear more. <laughs> like, it's got to be a little bit more nuanced than that. I need to know exactly what it is you're trying to do. Because it is a lot of people at 40 that's quitting their jobs because they want to be entrepreneurs now. But it's because they have products that they want to sell or you know they got t-shirts that they've made or they've got some idea for an app that they want to push now and all of that's great but i gotta hear more i gotta know exactly why you're quitting your job at 40 years old because i i i thoroughly believe that it's 168 hours in a week and i believe that it's more than enough time to chase your dreams and deal with your reality and the reality is you got bills and the reality is you probably got kids at 40. And the reality is you probably got a significant other you need to take care of. So after you do your 40 hours or, you know, whatever it is, a week at your job that's dealing with your reality, then use the rest of the time to try to, you know, chase your dreams. Right, because at some point in their lives, like you said, everybody in this room has had at some point that feeling, this is something I would do for free. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. even if they can't, they're not going to, like, immediately apply to be... Uh, a radio host somewhere, but maybe there's there's little steps that they could take. Well, I mean, like you know, the, the radio thing worked for me, and that's as I said earlier. I, I I grew up in school. I got kicked out of two high schools, and I was a class clown and I was disruptive. That's what that's what any progress report, any write up that you would see, disruptive class clown. Now I get paid to be disruptive and a class clown on radio. So it's kind of like I took those you know, so-called flaws and, and made them my, my strength in a, in a way. So I think that's what everybody needs to do. Like sit back and figure out what it is that you're good at or, or, what, or, or, or what, you, huh? what you were disruptive at at yeah, the age of 13. Exa- exactly. That might be your thing. Like you might have been the guy who was in school who just always drew all the time. Like you was just always drawing and you was a very good drawer and you used to get in trouble for not doing your homework because you was always drawing. Did you ever pursue art? Ever? Did you ever, you know, think to get into animation maybe? Did you ever try to write your own comic? Did you ever do illustration illustration for, for some books or anything? Like you just have to really pay attention to the, the, the things that you're, you're good at that you may not be getting paid for or you may even be getting in trouble for and try to find power within that. So, you know, I'm so grateful you came on the podcast and we're here in front of this great live audience. I just want to mention again, your book just came out. Yes, sir. Shook One by Charlemagne the God, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. Also, maybe most people don't know, but you have a role in the movie Bodied, which is coming out tomorrow. Uh, yeah, Bodied will be in theaters tomorrow. It's um, produced by Eminem. It's a, a Joseph Kahn film. It's a, dope, it's a dope concept because it explores uh, political incorrectness through battle rap. And, you know, I tell people all the time, we live in this country where we think we have freedom of speech. And we do. You're free to say whatever you want, but it's really not free. It is a cost to it because you may offend some people uh, and you can't tell somebody how to react to things that you say. 
You know, somebody may not like something you said and they may fire you or they may, you know, not hire you or they may slap the shit out of you. You don't know, but you can't tell people how to react. And I think that this movie, um, it really explores that in a, in a, in a really a really cool way through the device of battle rap. So it'll be out in theaters tomorrow called Body. And I just want to say also, just, the, you know, Shook One, I really do view this as a guide to not only success, because we see your ups and downs, your failures, all the things that you worried about over the, the past few decades, but then the steps you took to deal with this anxiety. And, and it's, you could see why people are attracted to the show. Your voice is very authentic and honest. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. Well, I want, And you're just as authentic as you are on the, the radio, which is incredible. Thank you. And I, I want to tell people, don't think that you're going to read this book and your anxiety is going to go away. That's not what this... It's not what this book is for at all. I'm I took just, more medication after reading this book. I, you might have. Yo, I tell my therapist that all the time. I'll be like, yo, I tell my therapist, who do you talk to after you talk to me? You know, but... Like, hey, is she on 79th and Park? Or maybe we go to the same nah, one. Nah, she's in Jersey. <laughs> but I just, I'm just sharing my experiences with anxiety, my experiences with PTSD, my experiences with, you know, things that happened to me when I was younger. And it's interesting because I turned... 40 this year and I feel like I thought I had everything all figured out but it's like when you transition into like this new decade it's like a switch goes off and you realize like my god I haven't unpacked anything from the last 39 years of my life so it's like I can't I can't go into the future with all that baggage. It's like my plane's only gonna reach a, a certain altitude. Like I gotta get rid of some of this baggage. And that's what I feel like I did in that book. And that's why I have a actual mental health professional in the book named Dr. Ish Major just to do clinical correlations to all my experiences. Cause I'm not an expert at nothing, okay? I just got some experiences and I'm sharing them. And I, I, I really, it's been very interesting to watch the reaction to the book this past couple of weeks. Cause I didn't understand, I didn't realize like anxiety was such a tough thing for people to talk about. Like I got people whispering to me on the sets of TV shows like, thank you, thank you because I suffer from anxiety and I'm on everything right now just to keep it together. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, you know, we all in this together. So I, 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 just, I just hope that that book just makes people want to live their truth when it comes to, comes to just Anxiety, having, having fears, it's okay. Well, you know, and, it, and it, it's a great book. And I want to just add to one thing you just said. You said you don't know anything. I certainly don't believe that. You know, you're, you, you know you've risen up in your, in your career. You're an enormous success. Millions of people listen to you. But, but there's something to be said to saying, I don't know anything. Because it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote Einstein just like you misquoted Einstein in the book, but you, you admitted it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, Einstein would put down on his, you know, whenever he had to fill out something, what do you do for a living? He would put, I'm a student. And yeah. it's a powerful thing to always view life that way. And it also helps reduce, at least for me, some anxiety. But I Absolutely. do think you know a lot. And this book is great. And thank you so much, Charlemagne the God, for coming thank on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you, James. Thank Appreciate you, you, man. Thank you. I will add that everybody who's here now can hang out at the bar, eat, drink, uh, oh, network. I thought you was about to say everybody in here get a free book, like on some Dr. Phil oh, shit. You're also, getting, you're also getting free books, so. Hey! 
And one more thing is that you can all stay for the 8 p.m. comedy show. So I hope you do because I'm emceeing it. And once again, thank you, Charlemagne the God, and thank get you, your James. free book. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much for Charlemagne the God and James Altucher.